Welcome back to the Resurrection Church Podcast. With me today is Aaron Downs. Aaron, how's it going? It's going well, AJ. It's nice to be with you again this week to record another episode. But sadly, we don't have a third person. Matthew, I think, is out of town. Josh is currently downstairs leading the music practice. So it's just us today. So hopefully we will be able to give some insightful comments and help people think about the text we're reading this week. I was thinking of the comments that you made a couple weeks ago when you were doing one of your solo episodes where you were just encouraging people who were reading and even if you don't think you can remember all these people's names or the, what was happening, just it's there's still value in reading and um, just being consistent because it does, you don't understand consciously maybe how it's shaping you, but it's it's still good to to be reading. And I felt like that I wasn't necessarily pulling a ton of stuff from the text. And so my comments might be a little light today, but I, I was thinking about your comments. So just, it's still valuable to, to read and hear God's word and it's still shaping me. I think that's right. I think that's good, especially in some of these Old Testament texts where it can get confusing with all of the geography, with the different names. Um, but as we're reading, we do encounter some common themes and common patterns that appear over and over again. And even if we're not consciously integrating those things into our life, I think even as we read them, we're hearing true things and we're seeing the example of other people. And it's kind of like everything else in life. We take some things in more consciously than others. And regardless, we're often shaped by them in ways we won't detect until later. Uh, we're on week 31, so that's days 211 to 217. So that brings us in the Old Testament to Second Chronicles 11, and almost through the end of the book. We're getting close. Uh, yeah, chapter we're, 29. We're but, really close to the end of yep. Second Chronicles, and I'm I'm kind of looking forward to that because we'll be able to continue the history beyond what we've already hit in First and Second Kings. Yeah, definitely. Okay, the main thing that I was thinking overall through this section of reading was uh, just that connection to following God and receiving blessing and not following God and receiving, you know, trouble, battles, uh, you know, other foreign powers coming and punishing the people and the king mostly. So um, we've considered that before, but I just felt like it was just very explicit in reading all of this at, at in one chunk of time. Yeah, absolutely. In that theme of being wholeheartedly devoted to the Lord for your whole life shows up again and again. Themes of inquiring what the Lord wants instead of just doing what you want shows up over and over again. Sometimes encouraging, sometimes discouraging, probably more discouraging than encouraging along the way because Israel's kings keep failing to walk in the way of the Lord. And it seems like some of them would until they gained power and authority, and then they rejected the way of the Lord and just started doing their own thing. We experience that in our lives too, don't we, where we go after our own way and then we receive the consequences of that, or, or maybe God chastises us, or even if we receive God's judgment by just his long-suffering nature to let us see our own folly, there's joy when we come back to him and we... We, I think we all experience that in our Christian life. Yeah, absolutely. 
Well, because we have already talked about some of these kings, unless there are any that you want to hit in particular, I just wanted to talk about one person who was a king's mother, the queen mother, who, when her son died, Ahaziah's mother, Athaliah, when her son died, she became brutal. She executed all of the royal heirs except for one who was snuck away, sneaked away. I don't know the right grammar on that one, but one gets away, Joash. But Athaliah reigned over the land as this evil queen. And it reminded me a lot of a fictional TV show that I've I watched in the past called Once Upon a Time, where there's the evil queen, Regina Mills, who like wants to remove anyone who has claim to the throne. And I'm I'm like, okay, that's Athalia right here. She is she is evil, she's wicked, she's out to get anybody who gets in her way. She is no good. Yeah, she's an interesting character. Whenever I've been reading these texts, I do imagine, like, try to connect it to TV shows or dramas where it kind of adds a bit, a little bit of life to it to add the color that that kind of maybe would give us a more right picture of what's happening. So, like, some of these King's speeches remind me a lot of there's another TV show called the Vikings where like these Viking warriors, when they would take over the clan or something and they're about to go out to battle and they're talking about how their gods are on their side and they're going to get the victory. And, um, you know, they're, they're going to essentially bring glory to their gods and their gods are going to protect them, but only if they fight with courage, you know, and if you, if you, Peter out, you're not going to go to Valhalla. You're, you know, you, you won't have the opportunity to fight for your God again. I think like some of those speeches in the, in that TV show where they're sacrificing animals to their gods along the way, I think that kind of gives us maybe a better picture of what's going on here. I think in the past, I've sometimes imagined like you know, a refined British king talking to these perfectly lined up soldiers of this huge nation, when in reality, there's a divided nation here. It's more like clans who are going out to war at times. So anyway, I know people use their imaginations in different ways to see these scenes, but at least those couple of TV shows, I'm not recommending them as like great shows necessarily, but perhaps suggesting that as we imagine this, we should not imagine something neat and pretty and clean, but um, a little bit more rugged. Mm. That reminds me of one of the concluding statements for one of these kings. I forget exactly which one, where it just said, and then the, you know, Israel and Judah were continually at war with each other and having these skirmishes. And that's kind of how I pictured it too, was just these clans around these borders of the cities or whatever are just constantly fighting each other and instead of like everybody the king and the whole the whole country or whatever like go out to battle it's just these these tribal these cities that are just skirmishing yeah absolutely i think that's right and you know especially as we look at these tribes going to war it's not nations massive happening it's more like nation states so i really do think some of those early um battles between clans or things like that is what we should imagine just going off that too, I feel like we do, we're going to do that in the New Testament reading as well. There's so much drama that even last time we had to leave off because there was just a lot to talk about and 
Um, I feel like we we do need to kind of connect that and color in this very dramatic scene of what's happening to Paul. And it, we'll, we'll get there, but just what you were saying here, we, we also will do that in this narrative in the New Testament too. Yeah, absolutely. And I haven't watched The Chosen. Does that do it very well? Chosen. It's this TV show about, well, Jesus and the apostles. Oh, yes, yeah, yeah. Uh, I watched the first couple episodes. Did you feel like it did a good job of kind of bringing this stuff to life? I do think so, yeah. It's one of those ones where I think the value it would be in rewatching it too. There's that, like any any show, any story, you know, Mm -hmm. you get the surface level stuff the first time you watch it, and then on rewatching, rereading, whatever another experience with it you catch different things and i feel like knowing the bible and watching a show that's about the bible you are automatically being like oh i don't like that that's a weird detail no i never i never thought john was like that or jesus said that and you kind of miss stuff because you're too busy critiquing it yep and that's kind of how i felt the first time and i think if i watched it again or those episodes again i would probably get a much more valuable yeah. watching experience of, of the whole, what they're trying to do with the show. Yeah, and that's an interesting point of discussion too, is the way that we feel like, oh, that couldn't have happened, or or like, ah, I don't like the way they portrayed that. But the criteria we're using is just our preconceived notions that aren't really based on doing historical work. It's just how we've always thought about it. And well, that's the natural thing is yeah. something challenged your idea. And it's like, wait, no, 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 I don't like that. That's not. And so, again, like you need to rewatch it and think, OK. Yep. And I, I think it's tough because most of us don't have the education to be able to know whether or not this TV show's portrayal would be historically accurate or not. Um, but it's a good reminder, nonetheless, that whenever we read the Bible, we're entering into the world of the Bible as a guest where it's a cross-cultural experience and we shouldn't critique or even form our imagination of what's happening there based on our life experience necessarily. You know, there may be points of overlap, but we have to caution ourselves against uh, giving privilege to our experience and imagining the text that way. Uh, we're, We're a hospitable guest in their culture as we read the Bible. I think there is something about Christian art that's not very good a lot of the time, like fiction or my parents. We ha- we watch a lot of like Bob Jones produced uh, movies yeah. and stuff, and I'm like, Chef-y. I already, yeah, I already have this notion of like if it's Christians trying to to make a movie or whatever, it's probably done poorly and didn't research it, or they have their own conservative bias for certain things or whatever type of bias, and so. I guess I still think that there's even they probably didn't research that they just filled it in like, and maybe it just depends on the show. But yeah, Um, I think that's right. You know, we we grew up in the funny type world where a lot of cheap work was done, and yeah, it just wasn't very quality, and maybe even it wasn't very rigorous in the research behind it. But oddly enough, it's really been Christians who have been the best artists over time, right? Especially earlier in in the church, you can see evidence of a lot of care and attention to art and producing the best art in the medium that they had available to them, you know, painting, storytelling. And then that kind of dropped off as soon as Christians started doing movie production. 
Um, part of that, though, is understandable because a lot of depictions require actors relating to each other outside of the relationships that they actually have. So when you think about trying to portray a loving marriage or something like that, and you have actors who aren't married, I think Christians have more to think about in the actual outworking of that, but then also we've sometimes settled just for cheap production values. Yeah, interesting. I wouldn't have thought of that specific aspect, too, of people having to think about how they're portraying something because of... Yeah, I mean, I've, I've thought about that ever since I was like seven and you're doing your kid's play of a nativity scene and there's a boy in the class who's Joseph and a girl who's Mary and you're talking about how we're like kind of making fun of them for like being married when they're not, you know, and, and you're like trying to figure out like, okay, I'm in this play with this girl, like... Um, should I hold her hand or not? And, you know, when when you're 12, maybe that's a huge deal. But I think Christian actors have to deal with these questions of uh, in what, what does that look like, you know, as we relate to each other in a depiction of something that we're not. I don't know. This is a big ethical question, especially for someone pursuing a career in that world. You know, and I think of Christians who, or people who identify as Christian on some level, who are in movies, and I kind of wonder how they think about these things if they do. You know, one that I I don't I don't know anything about this guy other than his performance in Parks and Rec and someone telling me he's a Christian. But Chris Pratt, I kind of you know you're like okay this guy like I I was watching a little bit of a behind the scenes thing on a Parks and Rec episode, and off script you know this wasn't scripted, but he just decided to like be f- completely naked in a in a thing to have like this genuine reaction of shock you know it wasn't written in he just chose to do this and you kind of wonder like how how do you filter all of these things as a christian um or like um you know scenes where you're supposedly married even if it's not an explicit sex scene or something but even um like kissing your wife in the in the movie or relating affectionately like these are all things that i think in terms of a sexual ethic in in movie acting these these are all hard things to deal with and and i don't know enough about it to know how christians think about it yeah that's probably a lot a lot of uh aspects to it and it's probably complicated yeah and obviously these questions have been around since before movie production theater productions of Mm -hmm. course and think, you know, back in England anyway, back in Shakespeare's day, it was all men on stage, right? It was 14-year-old boys playing the females. So things just were a little bit different there too. So anyway, lots of questions I take us a little bit beyond this, uh, but I think we can use our imaginations and try to calibrate them to the historical cultural setting in as much as we know what it is. Hmm. I think there are a lot of study Bibles, too, now that we're just kind of coming back to reading through the Bible. There's a lot of study Bibles that I think have a lot of good notes that, you know, are aimed at historical detail or, you know, trying to color in the the setting and the scene. And in chapter 13, it said there was this covenant of salt. And the ESV footnote just said that it denoted a permanent provision, and it gave another passage but I, that I did not look up. 
But I was just curious, like that seemed, I don't ever remember hearing that covenant of salt, like as a, maybe that's just a a, fr- uh, a phrase that they had that, that meant permanence, but. Like, yeah, that's know. a, that's a good question. I think covenant itself means permanent, like you would kind well, of. Well, covenants can be broken, yeah, right? true. Uh, they can be annulled. Uh, I think Josh has thought about this a little bit more when he was talking about in Mark about the salt being the salt of the earth and these sorts of things. But I'm, I would be inclined to take it one of two ways. One way would be to draw on salt as a preservative, so a covenant of preservation. So God has declared to David, I'll always have one of your descendants. I'm going to preserve your family line in a way that is more intensified than even to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. It's more narrow to to this kingly position, right? So it could be a covenant of salt in that way. Um, But then also I'd be inclined to take it towards the notion of salt is a gesture of hospitality and reception. So in a lot of cultures, this idea of, of sharing in someone's bread and salt you're, you're taking kind of this, um, I guess, vow of hospitality or a show of hospitality. So when he talks about this covenant of salt, it's welcoming David and his descendants to dine in the presence of God. We get some of that imagery. And, and even as we talked about last time, when they're all worshiping God, they conclude with eating and drinking before the Lord with great joy. So it's almost like you welcome me to your table in the presence of my enemies. Some of that language might be there where there's this vow of protection despite all of the enemies who might come against them. That makes sense. What what would Josh say? Like, what is his, you know, you're saying you would take it in maybe a different direction. What? Well, I don't know what he would say. Oh, okay. I don't remember. I was just saying that he's thought about it a bit more sure. because okay. some people connect some of Jesus is saying related to salt back to this. And I don't remember what he concluded. Mm. Okay. Yeah. Th- these are just my two guesses. You know, I have not, I've get, not gone in depth study like he has. So he would probably have had a better guess. Salt is a preservative that seems to fit the context so that yeah. seems to make sense. And I don't know if it... And the two kind of go together, yeah, right? I don't know if it's... Pre- preservation and protection right. kind of go hand in hand. Mm-hmm. And I, I think especially as he's talking about this, they're talking about it in the context of these worthless and wicked men. You know, so these evil people are trying to assert themselves against God's kingdom, which is in the hand of one of David's sons. So it's almost like, we're, we're going to make these sacrifices. We're going to um, have this ceremonially clean table. You know, so there's meal imagery there as well. So I think they're not necessarily mutually exclusive. They could go together. Yeah, and I could be wrong. So again, as usual, if any of our listeners have done some research on this and have a different and or better answer, you can send it our way. Mm-hmm. This is some um, live Bible study. Yeah. <laughs> Numbers 18, 19. I give to you and to your sons and daughters all the holy contributions that the Israelites present to the Lord as a permanent statue. It is a permanent covenant of salt before the Lord for you as well as for your offspring. Yeah, so another phrase there. Yeah, I don't I don't know. 
that that helps clarify anything for us because even there you get, if you go down to verse 27, some of these things are talked about in terms of the grain and the harvest from the wine press. So you have that imagery again too, and your, you and your whole household may eat it anywhere. Um, so yeah, I don't know, probably these things go together. I'm sure there's a journal article somewhere about all of the uses of the phrase covenant of salt in ancient Near Eastern literature, but um, I have not done any of that research. Well, I do appreciate that you you definitely had a response. You had more than more than I had. I just had the question. So. Oh well, I mean, I'm always happy to take a guess at something, and obviously, people talk about these things all the time, and I can't remember what everyone says. Yeah. You know, you take a bunch of classes, and things get referenced in a bunch of like all the like not all the options, but a bunch of common answers are thrown out there, and then I mean, when you're in a Pentateuch class and you come across something like that. You just keep moving on to the next thing. It's like one of the least important things you're trying to figure out when you're right. studying the old, the old Testament, but yeah. it's obviously something of interest. Well, I was just curious that, you know, it seemed like a, a curious phrase or, uh, Oh yeah. So. Yeah. I'm with you. I'm with you. I wish I knew more. So listeners help us out. Do you want to transition to the book of Acts? Yeah, so we kind of ended in chapter 20 with Paul's farewell address to the Ephesian elders. And then we briefly talked about some of the warnings of the prophets as Paul was planning to go up to Jerusalem. So really, we should pick up in 21.15 and following. 21.15. Yeah. So Paul's going to visit James as the heading in my Bible. Yeah, conflict over the Gentile mission, perhaps, but he went into James. The elders are present. He reported what God was doing among the Gentiles, and they all received this really positively, but they also realize that there are Jews who don't like this fact. They don't like that you are really concerned about the Gentiles, and you have to remember at this point, everyone's looking at Christianity or the way is just a sect of Judaism. So sometimes we think that all Jews believed and practiced the same things. Well, there were different parties, we might say, within the larger Judaic belief, kind of like we have different denominations. It's not really the same, but it's maybe that's the best analogy that we have to where like someone outside of the Christian faith might look at Baptists and Presbyterians and Anglicans and Catholics and say, you're all Christians, you're all the same. Um, but then they're like, once you get into that world, it's really multifaceted. And even as you get into a certain denomination, there are like a ton of different kinds of Baptists and Presbyterians and Anglicans. So even like the more unified you are, the more divided you become over particulars, right? Mm-hmm. So they, they looked at, the way Christians, as we might say analogously, a denomination within Judaism, and one that was way more open to full Gentile inclusion, but they're sharing this common text, the Torah and the old the scriptures, the law of the prophets, and uh, th- some of these non-Christian Jews are like, you are violating the law. And you're even bringing Gentiles around into the temple, which is not permitted, you know. So these guys, James and the others, are like, look, 
there are a bunch of people who are misunderstanding these things and they're going to try to, you know, mess things up for you. So you should ritually purify yourself and go to the temple and pray and kind of show like you're, you're still like you're the way is still connected to the Torah. So Paul does this, right? And he goes into the temple and he goes in with Jews who have been purified, but the people from the outside think that they brought a Gentile into the temple because they've seen him with Gentiles. Mm -hmm. So they accuse him of defiling the temple and there's a riot that goes on. Um, it's it's awful. Paul addresses the people, and uh, they are not happy with them. But once they hear him speaking in Hebrew or Aramaic, they listen to him a little bit more. And they do so up until he pretty much starts talking about the fact that he's sharing the gospel with the Gentiles as well, and, and people get mad. Yeah, so he basically tells his testimony here, right, and shares his story and, and you know, takes this opportunity to, to share the gospel. Yeah, he does, and he does that over and over again, right? Just as God told him he would, right? You're, you're going to testify to the name of Christ and on, on the way to your death, really, even. Right. Um, I think it's interesting in chapter 22, verse 16, after he declares this, he says, why are you delaying? Get up, be baptized, and wash away your sins, calling on his name. And throughout the book of Acts, we've noticed this, that baptism is really part of the gospel call. Mm -hmm. So I was at an ETS, Evangelical Theological Society, gathering this spring, and a guy from, from the school I go to presented a, a paper on baptism as part of the gospel call. And he was pointing out the fact that Baptists almost overly react sometimes to the notion that baptism regenerates or that you get saved by being baptism. And they overreact by then separating baptism from the gospel call. But over and over again, we see people who share the gospel and either they explicitly include baptism as part of the response, the proper response, or the way that they've presented it leads someone to that natural conclusion. So when you think about Philip in the Ethiopian eunuch, he began explaining the message about Jesus to him, starting with Isaiah. And then the natural question that the Ethiopian asked was, what's keeping me from being baptized? Right. So I think it, if it would be good for us Baptists to recognize the importance, you know, it's in our name, so we should not try to unduly deflect the importance of baptism to avoid maybe misunderstandings, but instead we should reincorporate it as part of the gospel call. I mean, it makes sense, too, that, you know, it's a symbol, it's a sign of, of what we believe. It's part of what you were saying about converting to this new way of living this new belief system and i think it makes sense just from what we've read earlier in acts where paul was asking you know you guys are you know who who are you following and, he's, and then they they answer by saying oh we were baptized by john or you know they mm -hmm. respond by this is where we have identified with and so the baptism is connected with this message or what they believe and so when someone is, con you know, converted to 
to Christ through the gospel, you know, it would make sense that baptism would be would be right there with it. It would it would happen in a close. Yeah, and and that's the same thing we get with Paul and Silas in jail with the Philippian jailer, right? He asks, what do I need to do to be saved? And they answer, repent and be baptized. Mm-hmm. So there, there is maybe part of the, a difference in the way we declare the gospel and they would with this close association with baptism is maybe because baptism is less understood. You know, Jesus and John didn't come up with baptism. This is a ritual practice that happened long before that's that's now reappropriated in light of Christ and, and through his own action. So maybe that's part of it. Like the symbolism isn't as obvious to people, but I still think we shouldn't capitulate to that. We, we don't do that on a lot of things. We don't say, well, because people don't understand it, we just don't do it. No, we say we're going to educate and um Mm-hmm. And that might take more time. So I understand why you might not baptize someone like right away when they respond to the gospel because they might not have the pre-existing category of baptism to know what they're doing. So it might take some time to fill that in a little bit, whereas someone like the Ethiopian and, and the jailer and others would have had this category of what baptism is and, and does already in their minds. Do they need to have that category? I mean, yeah, do they need to have that category? I think they need at yes least the no. basic structure of it because yeah. we talk about doing things by faith or in faith, mm-hmm. and I, I think it's hard to do something in faith that you don't understand. Sure. I mean, your repentance. Like, if you just tell somebody, hey, read this prayer on the bat- bot- bottom of a tract, and they don't understand what they're saying— is that prayer in faith? No, I don't think so. It's not, it's not um, the right uttering of words that brings salvation, nor is it just the right action, but it's these things animated by faith in Jesus, right? We, we can't go too much longer on this, but if we deep dive into what symbols are and how they work, they require good faith operation. So if you're in another country... You, you might do a gesture that apparently is super inappropriate there, but you had no idea. You're just, like, making a hand motion. And, like, initially, people might be like, what did you just do? But when they come to understand, oh, you're a foreigner and you had no idea what you were doing, it's now meaningless. The, the symbol is not invalid, but it's invalidated by your action. You, you aren't operating in that symbol correctly in the same way that someone here you know we have gestures or symbols that we take on and if we do it unintentionally it's like oh that okay you accidentally flipped me off because you were like trying to i don't know grab something and your finger got stuck well that doesn't mean anything so are we talking about a symbol and its meaning towards the person who's doing the action or to other people around both directions both directions yeah okay so we'll use this flipping someone off thing um i i once had an ice auger drop on my middle finger and i have a nice scar on it and for like i forget how many of weeks i had this huge cast on my middle finger and if if i were just like walking around and someone thought i was flipping them off 
Um, and then they like got closer and saw, oh, he has a cast on his finger. He he wasn't doing anything. That symbol no longer communic did the same thing to them or to me, you know. But if I like am driving around and I got really mad at somebody and flipped them off, they're receiving a certain communication from me. But that symbol is also doing something in me as well. Sure. It's both expressive and internally for me. And I think baptism is a little bit like that. So you could go through baptism without conscious awareness of what you're doing. And very initially, it might communicate something, but it's quickly invalidated through the lack of good faith participation. So I have two things here. So firstly, I look at my own life, and I was baptized at a young age. I think it was eight. And at that point, the structure that I had and what I knew that I was doing was following Christ's command because this is what happens. This is what you do after you get saved. And so I feel like that was enough. And as my faith grew and I understood more about what baptism was later, even after it happened, I feel like that, so that's fine. Like it was still, it still communicated what it was supposed to do to the people who were there. But I just had a greater understanding as I continued to grow in faith and understand what what baptism was yeah absolutely same for me you know there there's a good faith operation there and it did communicate something externally and it did do something internally but looking back on it now you're like oh i i was so unaware of the bigger picture here Mm -hmm. but that doesn't invalidate it it just means that now that symbol continues to do its work. And then particularly as you observe other people's baptisms or reflect on your baptism, that symbol carries greater and greater significance. It, it's like it matures and grows in its strength. And and I think that's right. That's how it is. That's how it should be. And that's really how all vows and symbols work. So if you and I think back to the day we took our wedding vows, we did them in good faith and we meant something by them. But we had not, as of yet, had the experience that would color in these things about sickness and health, in wealth and in poverty. Like we we said the things in good faith, and they meant something externally. And as we uttered them, it did something internally that grows our commitment. But it's not until later on, as we experience and know, like. Now it takes on more meaning. So now when you and I mm-hmm. will watch Matthew and Michelle's wedding here in a few weeks, we will probably reflect on our wedding vows, and they'll be more meaningful, we might say, to us now than they even were on that day. But it doesn't invalidate them, and we don't have to redo them. I think that's a really helpful example. The people who are involved in the marriage ceremony, they don't know what it means to be married and what it's going to mean to fulfill those vows, but they do have... A general idea. They know what's going on. They're, they, they have the structure for it. Mm-hmm. Um, baptism is maybe a little bit different. You know, I was thinking, and maybe you can clarify this, but the Ethiopian eunuch, like that wasn't in like our traditional setting where we have a church that is watching this happen. It seems like it was a private thing. I mean, I don't know how many people were there with in this caravan or if it was just him. Mm-hmm. You know, like. I don't well, know. We, we don't we're pretty detail. confident it was more than just him. Okay, you so know? it would have some aspect. Yeah, of, like, given his other people saw. official role, okay, and like travel, uh, 
procedures back then, he wouldn't have been alone on that journey. Sure. He, he, he has some measure of wealth. He's, he's the guy in the chair. He's not just journeying by himself. So other people are there and observing these things. And obviously, as the church develops over time, some of these, there, there is theological development. So I'm, we're not arguing that we should go back and do everything exactly like it happened in the book of Acts. This is like a forming of the church beginning in Jerusalem and spreading out to the uttermost parts of the, the world. And for both the baptism and the Lord's Supper, rites of the church, we see theological development along the way. And uh, what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, for example, includes what Jesus did, but he expounds on it. Same thing in chapter 10, where he talks about, for there, because there is one bread, you are one body. Well, he's theologizing, right? That That's not precisely what Jesus said. He's, he's recognizing this symbol is bigger than just one piece. It's and so is baptism. It's bigger than just one thing. Now, I would say a difference between the baptism and marriage, you know, the, the analogy, it's analogous. It's not the same because baptism is a sacrament or an ordinance of the church. It's, it's both. Usually we say ordinance when we're emphasizing what our role is and sacrament when we're emphasizing what God does in it. Um, marriage is not a sacrament according to our Protestant viewpoint. You know, for the Catholic Church, it is. And there are some interesting reasons why that is. Part of it is because um, in Ephesians, when Paul says this is a, a mystery, when he's talking about marriage, have we so talked same. about this? I think, yeah, I think we have. It's the term, the Latin term for mystery, translation of mystery is sacramentum. Yep. You know, so there's some confusion there. Significantly, in the New Testament, never is the Lord's Supper or baptism referred to as a mystery. So there's, there's a lot more that's going on there than just that. But we don't say marriage is a sacrament like we do say baptism in, in the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper is. So, th- so there are differences, but generally we're talking about symbols and vows, and baptism is a symbol and a vow. It's a pledge of allegiance to King Jesus. Okay. So... We've maybe gone a little bit far field, but I think it, it's good for us to think about these things, especially if we're claiming to be Baptists of any kind, big B or little b, how, however you want to talk about it. In the Baptist tradition, credo-Baptists, we need to be careful to think about baptism as part of the gospel call, even if situationally we understand there needs to be some education for someone to understand what they're doing in baptism. And, and what God is doing in baptism. Right. I think it's interesting where we have Paul, you know, we just saw him speaking and giving his testimony, you know, in, in this public setting when he's being accused. And there are some verses where he, it's like he talked with the, the king or if it was the, gov- the Felix guy or whoever, I forget exactly. Felix and Festus yeah. and Agrippa and... Beatrice. Beatrice, yes, thank you. The governor. Yeah, so he talked with them privately and explained things. And I, I, I want to know more. I wanted to, you know, it seemed like there was the, I think it was Agrippa who was almost convinced. He's like, yeah, I'm really familiar with this stuff, but I'm not, I'm not totally convinced. And I think it's interesting that, number one, he's familiar with the Jewish history and the, the law. Yeah, I think, you know, King Agrippa is an interesting guy, but part of what fills that in is 
the reality that religion and politics weren't two different things. And Rome was very interested in understanding the religion of the people that they conquered, because unlike some rulers and and empires, they allowed people to continue in their religion. They would just often have them add Roman religions as well. Well, with the Jews, they took the time to understand, and they kind of compromised and said, okay, you keep doing your thing, but you need to, and we won't make you make sacrifices to the emperor, but you need to make sacrifices to your God for the emperor. So they took the time to understand these things because religion and politics go hand in hand. They're they're not separate things. So even the party of the Pharisees and the party of the Sadducees and the party of Christ, that's Christians, um, these things are so combined. So if you're going to be a political ruler, leader, you've got to understand religion too. And it seems like Paul uses that to his advantage in these different situations. He he knew what he was doing. He's a smart guy. So oh yeah, it's, he's it's really cool to he's super smart, and everyone knows it. You know, Festus, you're out of your mind. Too much studying is driving you mad. <laughs> um, you know, these he he's a clever guy, and he's using things to his advantage while also being truthful. Right. Um, so it's interesting as we hear him testify uh, that. Sometimes what we get when we're reading something like Romans and then we try to articulate the gospel based on that, we're unconsciously only attending to certain parts in Romans based on our Reformation heritage, which is not altogether bad, but it's also eventually, I think it gets to where we start to misrepresent Paul, and that's where we're in the book of James, so this is relevant where sometimes we pit Paul and James against each other in the way they talk about faith and works. So I was especially drawn to the text in Acts 26, verse 20, where Paul's talking about um, preaching the gospel. He said that he was telling the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God and do works worthy of repentance. And we often would, if we were just saying, if someone asked us, write out what Paul would say the message of the gospel is. I don't know that very often we would give that line, mm-hmm. but Paul himself gave that line. Yeah. And over and over again in the book of Acts, we see that Paul and James are, I think, pretty much on the same exact page. We just have heard Paul through Martin Luther, maybe, instead of understanding that what Luther was doing is emphasizing something that wrongly was underemphasized or misunderstood. Um and then we create a whole way of thinking about the gospel around that instead of looking at the broader message. Right. Yeah, he did not like the book of James, right? No, he called it an epistle of straw. I mean, he, I think he still wrote a commentary on it. Um, okay. But, you know, Luther also was like, yeah, we should read the Apocrypha because it's good and helpful. Right. Uh, but we, you know, in a lot of Christian traditions say, let's read that, in, but we're not going to form our doctrine by it. I'm not sure exactly how Luther thought about James. He's always quoted about calling it an epistle straw, but I haven't read his commentary. So who knows? Maybe he did shape doctrine based on it. Well, it seems like there were misunderstandings in, you know, his context with the Roman Catholic Church and the the abuses of the the text that, that they would, the liberties that they would take. And it's tough because whenever you're correcting an issue, you almost have to use unbalanced communication to right. try to bring things back into balance. 
and that that's good in those moments. Jesus does this too, right? Um, like when he's talking to the rich man, go sell everything you have. Yep. Well, he, he's getting to the heart of a problem that needs to be addressed, and we could wrongly grab onto just that section and say, Jesus hates wealth, and if you're going to be a Christian, you can't have any money. Well, that, that wouldn't be a fair treatment of Jesus's larger teaching, and we need to be careful about that with Paul's teaching to avoid grabbing onto just one slice instead of grabbing onto his whole whole teaching. Yeah, that's a good point. And we have a lot of Paul's teaching, so we have we have a lot more to, to look at, and I think we'll get there. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, w- I want to point out that as we get towards the end of Acts, as we were commenting last time, we really do observe Paul reliving Jesus's last steps. Uh, a lot of the imagery that's used, I think, is intentionally there to show us that Jesus's followers pick up their cross and follow after him. And it's not precisely the same, but we we fill up the afflictions of Christ. We suffer with and for Christ, and we ought to live a life like his and die a death like his. And we see that with Paul here. So I can't take the time to draw attention to all of them, but I think if you uh, are following Paul's trial, you you get some of that same sense of his testimony before the rulers in Jesus's. Though, of course, Paul answers the questions. There's, there are a lot of questions about, who are you, Paul? And he answers it by connecting his identity to Christ in his change of identity and his conversion in Christ, whereas Christ says, you already know who I am, pretty much. You say that I am the king, right? So mm-hmm. both of them in their trials testify to Jesus as the fulfillment of Israel's scripture, the king of the Jews who will become the king of the world. Um, but then Paul is in this shipwreck and um, you know, I think there's maybe some cross cross imagery as they're clinging to wood in the waters of baptism. You know, different Christian traditions have read this in different ways, but but there's this life-threatening event, right? It's like a death and resurrection experience that's emphasized even more as Paul comes out of that with a, a snake biting onto him, and he he's like conquering death left and right. He's healing diseases. Um, he's as he's witnessing to the risen Christ. You know, some of the rulers were like, "Yeah, he's talking about this dead guy, a certain man named Jesus," and Paul's saying he's alive. Well, there's the validation of that testimony shows up over and over again. Um, but I think it's interesting before Paul goes through this clinging to wood, death, and resurrection-like experience, he's with all of the the sailors on on the ship, and he's telling them. God has promised that if you stick with me, you'll have life. Don't abandon me. And it's almost like Jesus's prayer when he's saying, the Father's put these people in my hand and not one of them can be plucked out. There's just a lot of resonance with some of Jesus's final words and his encouragement for the disciples to stay with him, not to abandon him, even though he knows they will. Well, Paul says the same thing. And then some soldiers take the skiff and they try to get away and we just assume that they died. Um, but then Paul is with them right before his his uh, death-like experience, and he takes some bread, he gives thanks to God in the presence of them all, he breaks it, and he begins to eat, and then people are encouraged. So it's almost like another Last Supper meal. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's, it's the last meal they'll have on that ship anyway. So I, I think that's interesting. Um, and then, of course, Paul goes on to testify of the gospel, and... He stays for two years in this rented house in Acts 28.30, and he proclaimed the kingdom of God, which is what Jesus proclaimed, 
teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ without with with all boldness and without hindrance. So really, you do have the life of Jesus recapitulated in a way in in the life of Paul. You just summarized two years of you know his life at the end, but the, you know there's 44 verses given to the shipwreck narrative, and you just explained all of the interesting things about that that I think a lot of people don't emphasize or just skip over as just part of the narrative, and they don't focus in on the detail that Luke is giving here, and for the reasons you just gave, I think it's a good thing to um, to consider. Yeah, and, you know, there's more that we could talk about in there, but I think paying special attention to what Paul teaches to people and what he declares is the gospel over and over again. He goes back to um, Christ is the hope of Israel. Um, from dawn to dust, he expounded and testified about the kingdom of God. He tried to persuade them about Jesus from both the law of Moses and the prophets. You know, I, I just think we have to grab onto this if we're saying we're going to be disciples of Jesus and Paul. We need to move beyond just an occasional letter he, that he wrote for a specific purpose. Romans is specifically answering the question, is God's word fallible? Is, is God's word powerful? Because it doesn't seem like it, because there are a lot of Gentiles coming to faith and not Jews. Well, that's what he's getting at in the whole of the book of Romans, and then concludes with how Jews and Gentiles should operate together in the church. And often we try to derive our gospel explanation from the Romans road or something like that, instead of considering Paul's larger teaching. Um, so that's just my encouragement to to us, I think, as we get to this Bible class on the gospel that we'll have at our church here at the end of the year in the final quarter. That's what I hope to do, is hope to show us uh, how we can talk about the gospel in a biblical way instead of a boiled down, stripped apart, Romans road kind of way. So talk to us about the end of this book. This is the end of the, the narrative in the New Testament for the most part, I think. Um, but, and it kind of leaves off on maybe an anticlimactic note. It just, it just stops. Like there's no, I don't know. It feels like there's not an ending, right? And maybe tell us why it, that is the case. Yeah. So it ends on a hopeful note, at least on a positive note, because yep. Paul's alive and teaching with boldness and without hindrance. And in the canonical arrangement that we have, we place Romans in the majority of Paul's letters right after that. So it's a nice segue into Paul's teaching. So we see a scene where he's teaching about the Lord Jesus, and now we have, what is it, 13 epistles pretty much in a row. That How many? I don't know. I don't know. We could count them. Uh, I don't want to prove myself wrong. But we, we have his teaching. So canonically, it's helpful, even though the oldest arrangements of the Bible have James and First and Second Peter, and First and Second and Third John, and Jude next. So the Catholic epistles are next, and that also makes sense because what's the first half of Acts documenting? Peter and James teaching, right? right? Peter's teaching James on the Jerusalem Council, so it makes sense that you'd have those letters next, followed by Paul's stuff mirroring the split in Acts. Um, mm-hmm. But it also works really well here. Uh, the caution for us, once again, is to avoid reading the New Testament with Paul is our main lens instead of with James and, the, and Jesus and the apostles is the main lens. So you can imagine that if you're reading in canonical order through the Bible for the first time and James is the next book and you first hear about faith and works from James, you're not then getting into Romans saying, wait, is Paul disagree 
or James disagreeing with Paul. You're asking, is Paul disagreeing with James, the guy who taught him? You know, like, so we'd be asking, framing the questions really differently. So we need to attend to that. But you ask, why, why is it left off here? I, I have a possible suggestion. One is because throughout, I have two suggestions. One is because throughout the letter, Luke is showing how even Gentile and non-Christian rulers keep responding favorably or semi-favorably to Paul even those who don't believe the gospel, even like Agrippa, he was like, hey, if he hadn't asked to appeal to the emperor, we would just let him go right now, but he's already put in the formal thing, so we've got to do it. you know. So if he ended with the Roman emperor who tradition has it, has Paul executed, that wouldn't, that wouldn't fit the theme, and it sure. wouldn't be as hopeful with the gospel going across the ends of the world. Uh, The other part of it is we don't quite know exactly what happened next, and it leaves the door open. So, you know, if if all of the timing works out, then Paul was in in house arrest, basically, when Rome was burnt down, and very possibly he was executed with a bunch of other Christians that Nero blames for the burning of Rome. We don't we don't know what happens. There's there's legend that he goes to Spain that he's released and, and shares the gospel and then is martyred later on, or that he there's another tradition that he goes back to some of the churches he's already been at. So, it you know, Paul can change his mind, even though he's told a bunch of people, I'm never going to see you again. Like in 2 Corinthians, he's like, hey, I wanted to visit you, but it didn't work out. Sorry. You know, so he can change his mind. So there, there may be a lot of... The, I guess I'm just giving a bunch of reasons why it, it may because of the themes of Gentile people responding favorably. It may be because of Paul met an untimely death. Uh, it may be because he continued on to do other things. Who knows? Okay. What's What's your suggestion? I'm guessing you read something or maybe saw something in your study note. I do agree that it leaves off with a note of hope that what Paul set out to do, spread the gospel to the Gentiles, is happening, and the church is growing. And um, what Jesus told Paul that he was going to go to Jerusalem was also happening, and that did happen. Yep. Um, regardless of, you know, what that ruler said, you know, if Paul didn't appeal to Caesar, you know, we could have just let him go, but that's not what Jesus had and told Paul would happen. So we see that continuing to happen. Why does it leave off here? That's a good question. There's another possible explanation that I was forgetting about. Yeah, go for it. And that is that Luke obviously is with Paul for a lot of this. Yep. And there's some speculation that Luke is busy writing all these things down so that they'll have documents for Paul's trial. Oh, sure. So it may be that he's recorded these things and then, like, it's trial time. So that's the end of, you know, it's being written down. It's, yeah. it's done, you know. So... Who knows? I think that's also a plausible explanation. Oh, I like that. Um, yeah, so so we could come up with a lot of things. I would take this moment to give two book recommendations. The first one is a book by a guy named Michael Bird called Introducing Paul. I th- think the subtitle is The Man and His Message, or The Man, The Message, His Mission and Message, something like that. It's not The Man, The Myth, The Legend, but Introducing Paul, Michael Bird. It's a shorter book. And it's Michael Bird is really funny, so there it's an easier one to read. I was trying to pull it off my shelf, and then I remembered that during the COVID shutdown, 
someone connected to our church asked to borrow it. And, and if I, you're listening to this podcast, yeah, please I, give the book back to Aaron. I know that it was a female. <laughs> okay. I'm not female certain listening. that she's still part of our church, if I'm thinking of the right person, but it may not have been her. But if you have my book, Introducing Paul by Michael Byrd, I would like that back before I order a replacement copy. So I have a question. Uh, Michael Byrd wrote a book recently with N.T. Wright, who is big into the new perspective on Paul. Where does Michael Byrd fall? You know, I I picked up that book and I've read sections of it. I don't remember totally where where he falls on this. He might be a little bit more kind of taking a mediating yeah. view, which okay. is kind of his MO, yep. which I kind of like actually. Yep. Um, because I think when you actually get into Second Temple Judaism studies, there might be some more credence to some of the ideas that Wright has on this than we might be inclined to give, even if we would disagree with the full picture that he provides. There are probably aspects of it that we need to take into consideration. And and I know that can be an unpopular thing to say, or or maybe even like a little hackle nerve raising for people. But we have to just recognize, like I was saying, often we're talking about justification, primarily through Martin Luther's teaching, and we set aside the actual historical background that's going on here, which leads me to my second book recommendation, which is by N.T. Wright, and it's called Paul, a Biography. And and it's a thicker book. Okay. I think it's an audiobook, so it might be easier to listen to. And, you know, I don't like always giving disclaimers for things because yes, everybody should just know there's not you're never going to agree with every single thing someone says in a book, right. you know, but since you brought up this issue, I'll, I'll give that slight disclaimer of, um, you know, as you read that or listen to it and have questions, come talk, you know, come talk to us. So it would be an enjoyable discussion, but I think on the whole, it's a really, really good work. You know, Tom Schreiner, I think has a biography of Paul as well. That, that would fit more into yeah. the conservative evangelical viewpoint of Paul. Um, I forget the subtitle of his. So I'd say through through recommendations, introducing Paul by Bird, Paul a biography by Wright, and then by Tom Schreiner, you could pick up his biography called Paul Apostle of God's Glory in Christ: A Pauline Theology. And if you have questions about this that you want explained, we have a spot where you can submit questions on our website under the podcast tab there's a form you can fill out now aj before we leave the book of acts can we talk about one final thing i'll allow it i appreciate that so at our church we believe that the lord's supper is for christians particularly christians who have been baptized but i as i was reading the book of acts now let me be clear i have not changed my mind on this i still believe that's the case but as we've read Luke Acts together, were those sailors baptized? I don't know. Well, that's part of Maybe that's part of where we I'm were, going. We knew he yeah, were, we were they were going to pre-baptismal, pre-shipwreck where yeah. they were um, dunked. But I think when you take Luke Acts together, someone could make a valid argument for open communion, which is to say anybody who would want to participate, Christian or non-Christian, could. And, and this is the, I think, the three-piece argument along the way. The first is that the initial giving of the Lord's Supper included Judas, 
who was not a true believer in Jesus, sure. and Jesus permitted him to partake of the meal. And then he sends him away, which is almost like excommunicating him, saying, you'll never participate in this table again. So, so I think there you could say, yes, you can have open communion, and you can also have the kind of discipline and excommunication that would keep anyone from coming to the, just anyone from coming to the table. So I think there are situations where people are like, well, there are unbelievers who are with us who are not outrightly rejecting Christ yet, and so we don't want to send them away from Christ to keep them from coming to the table. But then there are other people who are like, yeah, we're antagonistic to Jesus. We're outrightly rejecting him. That wouldn't be permitted. So I think even open communion people would have that distinction. I, I haven't looked this up, so I don't know all the ins and outs of the position. But then second, on the road to Emmaus, post-resurrection, Jesus is walking with the two disciples, Cleopas and one other, and he teaches them everything about himself in the Old Testament. They don't recognize him until he gives them the Lord's Supper, you know? So I think there's this idea that, someone along yeah, the way that or... it's revealing of Christ. And so people who, who are interested, who are willing to learn, but have not yet recognized Jesus for themselves, one of the ways that that happens is through participation in the table where they come to see, to perceive Christ rightly and even experience his presence. That's part of the Luke Lucan teaching is um, immediately Jesus disappears from them, right? So the way that they'll experience God's presence is through the scriptures in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. So, so I would see that as like a secondary argument as you move through Luke's writings. And then finally, as you mentioned, when we get to Acts and Paul is breaking bread with these sailors who have no indication that they've repented and believed the gospel. They've just decided to listen to Paul. Um, they, they appear to be partaking in what looks like a Last Supper-like meal, if, if not the Lord's Supper. So like I said, I'm not, I'm not arguing for this position as if I believe it. I, I just have always looked at it kind of negatively as if there was nothing to back it up. But as we've read through Luke and Acts, I've kind of been like, you know, I think there, there could be a valid biblical argument for this, even if I would reject it for other reasons. Um, But I also would want to say it it helps us think about the way that we do the Lord's Supper and to feel more confident that we're not failing to fence the table well enough by virtue of handing out the elements and letting people just grab something instead of the more traditional way of having people come to the front so the pastor can deny people communion as he, you know, one of his jobs is to, to know, are these people testifying to faith and repentance? And if we have people come to the front, we can turn them away and say, don't participate in this. But we don't do that. And sometimes, you know, there's that question of, are we failing to um, do what we were supposed to in, in fencing this table, as the term often is. Um, and I don't think so. You know, I think there are worse things than for unbelievers to participate in the table. You know, they're already condemned, right? So they're, that, that's what we're saying. They're, I think only something positive can, can come from that, maybe. So I, all that to say, I'm not arguing for this position that saying that we should do it. But I think as we encounter Christians who hold an open view of communion, some of them might hold it thoughtlessly, but there there might be a 
quote-unquote biblical argument or biblical precedent for it. Yeah, I appreciate those comments. I think there's always something good when you can find a charitable reason to view people who disagree with you. And Mm -hmm. I I think you've stated some good reasons why we can can do that. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, we, we could go on to try to give reasons why we still wouldn't do that. Same thing with why we still wouldn't just baptize someone right away. You know, we can think about these things and the way it theologically develops. But as we read, let's keep doing that. Let's keep trying to understand the perspective of other people who are interpreting it, uh, large strands of Christianity that look at it differently. Um, But all the while praying that the Lord would give us insight and understanding and faithfulness as we seek to do the word, to put it into practice together. Thanks, Aaron. Next week, we will be considering the book of Romans. We're looking forward to that. Thanks for being with us. Thanks for being with me, Aaron. Until next time. This podcast is a ministry of Resurrection Church. You can find out more at resurrectionmn.org.